Hey, let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, as we continue our series that we've been doing here and going through the various Gospels and answering the question, who does Jesus love? I thought Tyler did an excellent job last week in uh, touching on the subject of marriage. And um, today we are going to be looking at uh, that Jesus loves lost people. Luke chapter 19, verse 1, follow along as I read. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when the crowd saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of all my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much, as we were just singing, that you are the God who runs after us. That when we stray, when we're lost, when we find ourselves in a difficult place, that you are there, that you are running after us to rescue us. And Lord, I pray today as we consider this story of this lost man, Zacchaeus, and what you did in order to help him become found. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged. I pray that our hearts would be stirred to see the way that you would like to use us in this world, those of us who are your followers and believers. But Lord, I also pray for anybody here in this room or anybody watching online who maybe doesn't have a relationship with you or is far from you, that, Lord, today they would understand your heart for them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up about an hour north of here, up in Santa Ana, up in Orange County. And I grew up in a great neighborhood where we had a lot of kids in my neighborhood, and we played a lot of ball together. It was a lot of fun. A couple of the guys had pools, so we were swimming a lot. But one of the things that we loved to do at night was to play hide-and-seek. And I got to say, I was an expert hide-and-seek Player, especially on the hiding front. I really got into it. I'd dress in all black or I'd dress in, you know, dark green. Sometimes I'd put, you know, stuff on my face and, and I was great at hiding. I was great at holding my breath. When any one of the seekers were coming around, whether I was in a bush or under a car or up in a tree, I would hold my breath. And I loved when he got to that point where I would hear them cry out, Ollie, Ollie, auction, free, free, free. And I don't know who made that up, but I knew what it meant. 
It meant that you're too good, we can't find you, so come on out, you know, you are free. Now, sometimes the guys that I lived with, they were, they could be a little bit cruel sometimes too, because they would just leave me out there. They'd go in somebody's house, have pizza and cookies, and I'm, I'm there waiting and waiting and waiting, and like, okay, and I come walking out and I'd go to the house, and they're in there just having a great time, like, we just gave up a long time ago, Rob, you know, to try and find you. But you know what's interesting? A lot of grown-ups still play hide-and-seek. They're hiding from their problems. They're hiding from conflicts. Sometimes they're hiding from people, from friends or from spouses. And sometimes they, they're thinking, you know, they're an expert hider because no one knows what's going on. I mean, how many times have we even seen a situation where somebody, you know, we hear of somebody who took their life and it's like no one had a clue. No one had a clue of what was going on. And, you know, some people even have the tendency to want to hide from God. But the cool thing about God is God is an expert seeker. And in our text today, we see a story where Jesus is seeking after this man. And in verse 10, Jesus makes a statement that really becomes one of the the mission statements of his ministry, where he says there in verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this is the only time recorded in any of the Gospels where Jesus makes this statement, but it's a profound revelation of his mission to the world, that he came to seek after lost people. We actually see this in the very beginning of the story of man there in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 where we read that God in chapters 1 and 2, he made Adam and then he made Eve. He brought her to, to Adam. There was the, oversaw the first wedding ceremony. Tyler talked about that a little bit last week. But then in chapter 3, it all goes south. When Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, they eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing that God told them that they couldn't do, and it says immediately after they ate that they understood, they knew that they were naked. Because that's what sin does. Sin destroys our innocence. And then it says that they understood that they were naked and they were ashamed because that's also what sin does is it brings guilt and shame. And because of their guilt and shame, Adam and Eve go and hide themselves. But then God comes walking into the story. And he's there in the garden. He's crying out, Adam, where are you? But he's not crying out as a cosmic cop seeking to bust, you know, his, this man and woman who have sinned, but he's coming as a heartbroken father seeking to rescue them and restore what had been broken. Well, in our text today, we see Jesus seeking after a lost person by the name of Zacchaeus. Let's consider Zacchaeus. Our text tells us that he was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for the Roman government. And because of that, the Jewish people looked at the tax collectors as being sellouts, as really being traitors, 
And the tax structure in Rome was, was overbearing. I mean, it took a lot to fund the Roman machine. So they had taxes for everything. For instance, they had what was called a poll tax. And anybody between the ages of 14 and 65, if you were a male, you had to pay this tax simply for being alive. You were paying a tax for breathing the Roman air. That was the poll tax. And then there was also the income tax, which in that culture, it was 10% of your income went to the government. Now, some, some of us might say, well, that doesn't seem too high. The average Californian pays somewhere between 6 to 8%. But I want to remind you, this is 2,000 years ago, okay? This is 2,000 years ago. They're paying 10% of their income to the government, There was also an import tax that you paid uh, a tax on anything that was imported that that came in to that city. There was a road tax to help upkeep the Roman roads. There was a harbor tax for the use of the harbors. If you liked fishing, you paid a tax for every single fish that you caught. Now, that might not seem like a big deal if you're picturing, you know, you're out there with your fishing pole and you're trying to catch fish and you get maybe two or three in a day if you're lucky, right? Well, no, they fish with nets. They throw these big nets out and they would haul in sometimes a hundred fish at a time and they would be taxed for every single fish that they caught. There was a ground tax where you paid a tenth for all the grain that you brought in and a fifth for all of the wine that you brought in. There was a cart tax. If you were taking a cart out into the streets and you were going to sell merchandise off of it, you would pay a tax for using that cart. And there was even a wheel tax. You would be taxed for the amount of wheels that were on your cart or on your wagon. So if you had four wheels on your cart or your wagon, you know, you were going to be paying a little bit more. You might want to consider a wheelbarrow you know, because that would be cheaper. I mean, it was crazy. All the things that they had, that they were taxed for. But this was the most perplexing thing is that there was no structure. Nobody knew what the structure was of their tax structure. The Roman government simply said to these tax collectors, you have to raise this much money for the district that you're in and the rest you can keep for yourself. And such a position would then lend itself to a great deal of abuse because what the tax collectors would do is there would be tax gouging that went on. They would charge higher percentages than the norm because that's how they got rich. And notice verse 2 tells us that this guy Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector and he was rich. In other words, he made a living of ripping off people. And because of that, he would have been hated by the people. In fact, 2,000 years ago in Judea, when they were naming the worst criminals in the cities, they lumped thieves, murderers, and tax collectors all in the same category. That's what they thought about these guys. They, tax collectors were barred. They couldn't go into the synagogue um, to worship. They were literally considered the scum of the earth. So politically speaking, Zacchaeus is an individual that everybody hates. They look at him. He's a sellout. He's a crook. 
And just to kind of maybe put this in some modern day perspective so we can maybe kind of get the, the, the type of the height of the disdain that people had for Zacchaeus, it would be the way a lot of people today maybe feel about Fauci or the way a lot of people today feel about Newsom, okay? So, so this is the picture that you have of, of Zacchaeus. Like he's up in that echelon. And the Bible also tells us here that he was of short stature. So he's a little guy. So picture Danny DeVito <laughs> with Fauci's face, okay? And you kind of have a picture of what people are feeling about Zacchaeus. And what's also ironic is his name actually means pure, innocent, and righteous. But he's anything but that. He's not living up to his namesake. So here's the question. What does Jesus do to seek out Zacchaeus? Well, the first thing I want you to note, if you're taking notes, is Jesus goes out of his way to reach this lost man. Look at verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 1 again. It says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Note that word, entered. You see, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's going from Galilee up to Jerusalem. He's entering into the final week of his life. And back in those days, as it is true to this day, the road that went from Galilee up to Jerusalem actually passes by the city of Jericho. In other words, there was no reason to actually go through the city. But Jesus goes out of his way to enter into this city. Why? Because he knows there's a divine appointment waiting for him there. That there's a man who's really lost that he's going to have an encounter with. It's very similar to what we see in John chapter 4. When Jesus tells his disciples, I must go through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament um, and the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans at that time, you know that Jewish people avoided the city of Samaria like the plague. They didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. But here Jesus is saying, I need to go there. I must go through there. And his disciples would be scratching their head like, why do you need to go through Samaria? But Jesus knew there was a divine appointment waiting for him there. There was a woman with a shady past and a shady present who was really lost and really hurting. And he was going to meet her by a well. He was going to ask her for a drink of water. And they were going to enter into a conversation that was going to end up literally changing her life. And she was going to get radically saved. And Zacchaeus is about to have a similar encounter. But in both John chapter 4 and Luke chapter 19, we see Jesus going out of his way to reach this lost sinner. And here's the application for us. If you and I are going to be people used by God to help reach lost people, we need to be willing to go out of our way. We need to be willing to break out of our comfort zones, to be stretched a little bit in order for God to use us. You know, I think about Pastor Chuck Smith during the Jesus People movement. And he's there, you know, at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and all of a sudden all these hippies start coming to the church. And what's interesting is, you know, they're coming in in their blue jeans and their t-shirts and a lot of time in their bare feet. And, 
you know, at that particular time, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was a very much a suit and tie crowd. But here in comes all these, you know, hippies. And as they were coming in with their bare feet, the, the carpet was getting all marred up. So one of the deacons, he puts a sign there on the entrance that says, no shoes, no entrance. Pastor Chuck sees it and he gets so upset. He rips it down. He wants to know who put this sign up and why did you put it up? And one of the deacons said, well, all of the, you know, they're coming in with their bare feet and the carpet's getting all, you know, dirty. And Pastor Chuck says, rip up the carpets. We need them here. We want them here. We want this to be a place that they feel welcome. And with the hippies, he embraced their dress. He embraced their music. He embraced their culture. And the rest is history. As a lot of us, we have been impacted by that move of God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes out of his way to seek out Zacchaeus. Look at verse 3. It says, and he sought to see, speaking of Zacchaeus, who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass by. Now this is such an interesting picture this guy Zacchaeus running because in that culture nothing that's just like culturally a no-no is men didn't go running government officials didn't go running and here's this government official he's he's running and not only that he's climbing up into a tree I mean he's acting like a little curious kid and he's climbing up into this tree to see you know if he can see Jesus when I was growing up in Orange County one day, I was probably about 10, 11 years old, I came home from school for lunch. And I come into the house, and I guess I left the door open or something, but my four-year-old brother, Albert, ends up getting loose, wanders off outside, okay? He escaped the asylum, you know, he, he, he's, he, he's out, he wanders off. Now, in that day and age, things were a little bit, you know, not as crazy as they are today. And so we weren't super alarmed, but we were definitely concerned, like, where did he go? So we're all out there, and a lot of the neighbors out there were like, Albert, Albert, where are you? We're looking all over the place. And this guy from around the, the cul-de-sac behind our house comes walking and goes, are you looking for a little kid? And we're like, yeah. And he goes, follow me. And we follow him to his house, and there is my brother up on his doorstep, fast asleep. I guess the guy's house looked a little bit like ours, and so he just, you know. But Albert was lost, but had no idea. He's just sleeping on the porch, you know. Like my parents made him sleep out there all the time. No, not really, but. Well, a lot of people today, they're spiritually asleep, the Bible says. And they're lost, and they don't even know it. I mean, you think about Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle. He was lost in his religion. He was lost in his zeal. Next week, we're going to talk about the rich young ruler who is lost in his goodness and all of his good deeds. And here we see this man, Zacchaeus, who is lost in his wealth, and he's lost in his greed, and he's lost in his power. But he doesn't even know it. He runs up, wants to see Jesus. Verse 5 says, and when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he saw him. Here's the second thing that we learn about how Jesus seeks after Zacchaeus is he saw him. He saw him. And what's interesting is when everybody else in Jericho looked at Zacchaeus, 
They saw a thief. They saw a crook. They saw a sellout. They saw the scum of the earth. That's how they saw Zacchaeus. What did Jesus see? A man. He sees a man up in a tree. (laughs) And this is important for us to note because if we are going to be used by Jesus to help reach people who are lost, we we need to see the people around us the way Jesus does. You know, when people see a prostitute, you know what Jesus sees? He sees a woman who's lost and hurting. When people, you know, see a drug dealer or a gangbanger, and that's what they see, you know what Jesus sees? A troubled kid. When, when we see somebody wrapped up in homosexuality, you know what Jesus sees? A mixed up man or woman. Guys, if we're going to be used by Jesus to help reach lost people, we need to see them the way that Jesus does. And notice, Jesus sees him, and then it says, he says to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Here's the third thing that we learn about how Jesus sought out Zacchaeus, is Jesus sought friendship with him. This is the only time in Scripture where we see Jesus inviting himself to someone's, over someone's house for a meal. He says, Zacchaeus, come down here. It's lunchtime, and I'm going to have lunch at your house. Now, this is huge, and I don't want you to miss this. Because, you see, in that culture, they literally believed that when you ate with somebody, you were becoming one with them. They ate on these tables that were low to the ground, and all the food would be put on the table, and they would sit down on these mats. And one of the things that was a part of every single meal was they would take their bread, and they would dip it into this sauce. And everybody there at the table is dipping into the same sauce, the way that we would you know, do chips and salsa. They're dipping into the same sauce. And they literally believe, because they were sharing the bread and sharing the sauce, that they were literally becoming one with that person. So when Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down there, because I'm going to your house for lunch, he was literally saying that he was willing to become one and to become friends with the, no- the most notorious sinner in that town. And here's something else they believed. They believed that if you ate with somebody who was a sinner, that you actually would become ceremonially unclean because you were eating with them. So this is a big deal, okay? This is a huge thing that is happening here. And think about this. Jesus is doing this out in the open, in front of everyone, for everyone to see. Everybody saw, Zacchaeus, hey, come down. I'm going to your house for lunch today. And you know, I don't think Zacchaeus was the kind of guy that had a lot of friends. And even the people who were his friends... I don't think they like to admit it. You know, none of them were posting on their Instagram page, going to Zacchaeus' house for dinner tonight, you know? No. They didn't want anybody to know that they were associated with him. But here Jesus is making it known. Everybody is seeing this. And there's two responses to this invitation. There's the response of Zacchaeus and the response of the crowd. Notice Zacchaeus' response in verse 6. It says, so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. 
Jesus says, come down from there. And Zacchaeus is like, yes, yes, Jesus, I would love to be your friend. He's excited and he's amazed. That's his reaction. But then we have the reaction of the crowd. Verse 7. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. The crowd was not joyful at all. They're not tweeting, this is amazing! Jesus wants to be Zacchaeus' friend. No, they're grumbling. They're complaining. They're gossiping. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Jesus is going to go to that guy's house and he wants to be friends with that guy? A similar thing happens at the conversion of another tax collector by the name of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus comes along and calls Matthew to leave his tax booth. Matthew starts following Jesus, gets so excited about about Jesus that he throws a party and invites all of his friends. So picture this, all of the riffraff of Capernaum where Matthew lived are coming to his house. I mean, you've got all the tax collectors, all the crooks, all the prostitutes, they're all coming to hang out because Matthew wants to introduce them to his new friend Jesus. And when the religious leaders see that Jesus is hanging out with that type of crowd, they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's like, why would he seek to be one with those type of people? And it says, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And in that story, Jesus doesn't just identify himself as a savior seeking after sinners, but as a physician seeking after sick people. And it's such an interesting picture. Because, you know, if you think about it, becoming a Christian is very similar to getting healed, or there's some correlation to getting healed of a sickness or disease. In the sense that, Oftentimes, before you can get healed of your sickness, you need to admit you have a sickness, right? Some of you know people. Maybe you live with someone who's always like, I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm okay. And it takes the point where they, you know, something really bad happens and you're calling the ambulance to come and pick them up and take them to the hospital before they finally wake up. And some people are like that. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. Before you can be made well, you need to admit, I am sick and I need a doctor. You see, the Bible says that we have all been infected with a deadly disease called sin. And it affects everyone. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and the soul that sins will surely die. In other words, there is no human cure. The statistics on death are huge 10 out of 10 there's no human cure and so in order to 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 get well from your sickness you have to be able to admit hey i'm sick i'm a sinner and i need a savior and jesus is the doctor who says hey i've come for those who are sick and i make house calls so when we are answering the question in this series who does jesus love and the answer today is he, lost, he loves lost people. He loves people who are sick 
spiritually. And he goes out of his way to reach them. In fact, he goes so far that he was willing to become one with them in order to save them. That's what the Bible says that he literally did for us. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21, Paul says, for he being God made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin. He wasn't, didn't have a, sin was not a part of who he was. He was the perfect man. He knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what happens to Jesus on the cross. All of the sin of the world is thrust upon him, past, present, and future. He literally becomes sin for us. He takes our sin upon himself to the point where he cries out from the cross, my God, my God. He's never, ever up to that point referred to his father as God, my God. It's always father. It was intimacy. But now he's experiencing in that moment the the weight of sin being thrust upon him. He's experiencing in that moment what it was like to be separated from the father. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus did that for us. He literally became sin so that we could experience his forgiveness and we could be made righteous in him. So Jesus heads off to Zacchaeus' house. Now you need to understand, you might want to write this in your Bible, that there is a gap between verse 6 and verses 7 and 8. Because now it goes, the scene goes from the, the road to now the house. And they're there in the home, and we don't know exactly what the conversation was that they had there in that home. We won't know until we get to heaven. We won't really discover what the exact details of, but we see the result of the conversation, that it leads to a full conversion in the life of Zacchaeus and true repentance. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, that's the key, he stood. He gets up from the table and he stands. It's a mark of showing respect. And he said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore it fourfold. This is the evidence of his repentance. You know, it's it's been said that godly sorrow leads to true repentance And the word repent means to turn away from one thing and turn towards another thing. It's doing a 180. So it's turning away from our sin and turning towards God. It's, I was running in this direction and now I'm going to be moving in this direction. I was living in this way and now I'm going to be living in this way. And this is what we see that happens in the life of Zacchaeus. And it's seen in his desire to make restitution. But he does it generously, way beyond what was required. You see, in the Old Testament law, it said that if you stole something from someone and you came to the place where you realized it was wrong and you're confessing it, that you had to, this was the restitution that was required, that you would restore what you had taken plus 20%. Now, if you stole an animal, you would double it. So let's say I steal your horse, so I'm coming back and I'm bringing you two horses. But Zacchaeus, he's going to restore fourfold. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot. 
That's like somebody comes into your garage and they steal your bicycle. Not your e-bike, but your bicycle, the one you still have to pedal with your own feet, okay? They steal that and they get, you know, they come to a place where they, they get convicted and they come back and they want to confess and it's like, you know, hey, I stole your bicycle and, you know, here's your bicycle and, and here's my brand new BMW. It's yours, you know? That's the idea. I mean, this is, this is the extremeness here, you know, he, and, and the generosity that he's showing here. Now, something that's important to note, though, restitution is not penance. Penance is a false teaching that you have done something and you need to pay God back and others back in order to be forgiven. That is not true. That is not a biblical teaching at all. This actually, restitution actually has nothing to do with being forgiven in the sight of God. But it is rather the evidence that you have been forgiven in the sight of God. It's the evidence of, of you knowing that something has happened in your life. That the Bible says when you come to Christ, that you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. That old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are given a new nature. You are given a new heart. And as a new person in Jesus, this is the idea, you should want to make things right with those that you've wronged. Not so that you can be made right with God, but because you understand that you have been made right with God. So it's the after effect. It's the overflow. It's the sense of this is what God has done for me. So I want to do that for others. And we see this in the life of Zacchaeus. He's like, hey, if I've wronged anybody, I want to restore it fourfold. And I am going to give half of my wealth to the poor. Why? Zacchaeus was touched by the generosity of Jesus. I mean, think about this. Jesus gives to Zacchaeus forgiveness of sin and eternal life and a new nature. What did Zacchaeus do? Nothing. What did he pay? Nothing. Zacchaeus just got the gift of salvation and he responds to the generosity of Jesus by saying, I want to be generous too. I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. You know, prior to this, Zacchaeus's life was marked by this question, how much can I get? Now his life was going to be marked by a new question, how much can I give? Prior to this, his life was marked by greed. Now his life was going to be marked by grace. You know, we have a saying here that's one of our core values that we say as Calvary Vista that we have been blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Well, Zacchaeus understands this. And now he is walking in this. He's saying, look, I want to show the same generosity that I'm getting from Jesus. I want to show that to others. So what does Jesus do to seek out Zacchaeus? Number one, he goes out of his way. Number two, he saw him. Number three, he sought friendship with Zacchaeus. The fourth and final thing I want you to notice today is how Jesus validates Zacchaeus's conversion. Look at verse nine. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
What is meant by when Jesus says he is now a son of Abraham? Literally, it's a true son of Abraham. Well, here's what you need to understand. Abraham is considered to be the father of faith. He's the founder of the Jewish nation because God came to this man, Abraham, when he was living in Ur of the Chaldees and said, I want you to follow me. I'm going to lead you to this new land and I'm going to make of you a great nation. But the problem was Abraham was old and he didn't have any kids. But what's interesting is that many Jewish people, because of their nationality and ethnically, they, they thought ethnically and nationally, that they belong to, you know, they, because they belong to Abraham, that they would be entered, they would be led into the kingdom of God. That's what they thought. Hey, we're his children, so we're good. You know, that's what they thought. Jesus is shedding light here on that misnomer when he says, truly, this guy, the guy that you guys looked at as the scum of the earth, truly, this man is a true son of Abraham, and it's because of his faith. And this provides a very interesting point, theologically speaking. You see, Paul declared in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham believed God. God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham said, I believe that. And, And Paul says, and because of that, it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. And Paul would say, use that as an analogy to say, and so we are justified by faith. Justified means declared righteous. Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed it, and God said, it's accounted to you. You are righteous in my sight, Abraham, because of your faith. And the picture that Paul is drawing from in Romans chapters 4 and 5 is Genesis chapter 15 where God makes this promise to Abraham, and Abraham believes it despite his old age, despite the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He believes what God was saying was true, and God says to Abraham that you are righteous in my eyes. And so in the book of Romans, Paul is using that occasion from Genesis chapter 15 in the life of Abraham to illustrate a theme that a person is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. He would write something similar in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he would write, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there in the book of Romans, as well as in the book of Ephesians, Paul is building this case that salvation is by faith apart from works. But then all of a sudden James comes along. And James writes something that seems on the surface to contradict or contradict what Paul wrote. Because James would write these words in, in James chapter 2, verse 17, that faith without works, it's dead. James would say, look, your faith has to have works attached to it. And what's interesting is James also uses an event in the life of Abraham to build his case. He uses Genesis chapter 22. When God says to Abraham, who now has a son, Isaac, take now your son, your only son, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham takes his son 
who's somewhere probably in his late teens, some even believe maybe 30 years old at this time, takes him up to Mount Moriah. And the writer of Hebrews gives us this insight that Abraham is going, is seeking to go through with this. He's going to sacrifice his son because he believes if God has him go through it, he's going to raise him from the dead. But God doesn't have Abraham go through with it. It was just a test. And Abraham passes the test And James uses that event in the life of Abraham to, as an illustration to reveal that Abraham's faith was genuine. And so James sums it up by saying that faith without works is dead. And then he adds this phrase, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Is James contradicting Paul? No. What James is saying is meant to complement what Paul taught and to give us this principle. We are saved by faith and not by our works, but true faith is a faith that is evidenced by works. And this is what Jesus means when he says that Zacchaeus is a true son of Abraham. He's saying that his faith is being evidenced by his works. Another way you might look at it is to say that true faith is a faith that, that works. It has action attached to it. It's not just a belief. It's not just a profession, but it's seen in its actions. And so I ask you this today as we wrap this up. Is your faith just a profession or is it seen? Is it evidenced? in the way you live your life? Is it seen, is it evidenced in your actions, in the works that you do for Jesus? It's a good question to consider. As we wrap this up, we we learn today that Jesus is the one who seeks after lost people. And I want to just say this. Because I know most of you here in this room, you, you know Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, you're, you're a follower of Jesus. But I just want to say this. You might still be lost in a sense today. You're lost in a situation. You're lost in a problem. You feel out on a limb, no pun intended, in your situation. Like you just don't know what to do. And I just want you to know that Jesus, his heart is towards you today. He loves you. He wants to be your friend. He wants to, if you will let him, he wants to be involved in that situation in your life that you feel lost in. But another thing that this reminds us of that we learn is that Jesus calls us as his church. He wants our lives to be used to help other lost people find Jesus, the great physician the Savior. But in order for us to do that, we are going to have to be willing to go out of our way, to be stretched, to go out of our comfort zone, to tell the Lord, hey, you can break me out of my comfort zone. We're going to need to be able to see the people in our spheres of influence that you might work with or live by or go to school with or wherever it might be, that we would see those people the way Jesus sees them. And that we would be willing 
to become friends with somebody that we wouldn't normally become friends with for the purpose of introducing them to Jesus. And I ask you this question. I ask me this question. Imagine what it would be like, church, if all of us said that this year, Lord, I want to be used in that way. So, Lord, I'm willing to go out of my comfort zone. Lord, show me the people in my sphere of influence, somebody that you want me to be friends with, to be friend, to reach out to, that I might get a chance to introduce them to you. You know, I say this, and I don't mean any guilt or condemnation by this. This is just a fact that I'm throwing out today for us to consider. But statistics tell us that most followers of Jesus have never in their lifetime led somebody else to Christ. That's what the statistics show us. And you know, that means we're missing out on something that God has for us. It's part of the Great Commission. And, I, and I'm saying this to, to myself as well. Because I get an, an unusual opportunity because of what I do, that people come in here hurting, and I have a chance to sit down with people, and I, I end up you know, getting a chance to lead them to Jesus. But I need to be just as intentional in my life outside of this place, at the gym and at the coffee shop and wherever it might be, to see people the way that Jesus does. And to say to Jesus, hey, Lord, I want to be used by you. Show me somebody in my sphere of influence or somebody that you've put in my path that you want me to befriend. And church, I just say this, imagine what would happen if every single one of us in this room did it. I think the Lord would blow our minds if we all did that. Lastly, and I will close with this, the Bible says that in a spiritual sense, every single human being is of short stature. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all short. We've all come up short in God's standard, and His standard is perfection. His standard is keeping the law, the Ten Commandments, not just in our actions, but also in our thought process. And the Bible says we've all come up short. We're all short people. We're all of short stature. But I remind you today that Jesus, what he did, he went out of his way to reach us. He left heaven and he came to this earth and he became a man so that he could go to a cross. And on that cross, he would literally become sin for us. That he would take all of our sin upon himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made righteous, and so that we could be friends with God. And if you're here today, you're watching online, and you have not given your life to Jesus, or maybe at some point in your life you professed faith in Christ, but you have walked away, I want you to know Jesus is seeking after you today because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. We're told in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus extends this invitation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door, I will come in and dine with him. I'll come in and 
be his friend. But you know what he's looking for? Faith in action that starts with opening up the door. Opening up the door of our hearts. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all it takes. is to say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Lord, I'm sick, I need a physician. And he is more than ready to meet you in that moment. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who came to seek and to save those who are lost. And Lord, we admit that's, that's us. And for those of us here in this room that do know you, Lord, we're so thankful that you sought after us, that you ran us down, that you found us. And Lord, we pray today as a church family, we pray, God, as individuals that you would give us your heart, that we would see people around us the way that you do, that we would be willing to be stretched out of our comfort zones, that, God, we would be willing to befriend people that we wouldn't even normally seek to do that with, that we might have the opportunity to introduce them to you. And Lord, we know it might take a week, it might take a month, it might take years. But God, we're asking you today to give us, to point us to that kind of a relationship. But Lord, I also pray for anybody here in this room, anybody watching online that doesn't know you, that isn't walking and living in that relationship with you, that they would receive your invitation today and they would open up the door of their hearts, that they would cry out to you right now and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I encourage you, if that's you, just right now, in the quietness of your heart, just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I'm sick and I need a doctor. I'm giving you my heart. I'm ready to turn from my sin and turn to you. And Jesus is going to meet you right now in this moment and bring forgiveness and healing. He's going to take your sin and he's going to pour his righteousness upon you. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the life that we have in you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.